Our topic for tonight is when Gentiles are interested in Judaism. Well, maybe conversion. We'll get to that at the end. But a lot of things happen before conversion. Or when I mentioned the topic to Alan, he said the, mo- the next thing that happens is the Moles form a union. <laughs> well, over the last few weeks, we have mentioned how Jewish identity was transformed throughout the Second uh, Commonwealth period from what initially had been a tribal or ethnic group uh, identity into one which was political in nature uh, with citizenship in the Judean state and or religious in that you were a worshiper of the God of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, This had significant uh, ramifications for the Jews themselves in that if you wanted to no longer be a Jew by religion, you might not be a Jew at all, as opposed to in a prior period when you just simply were uh, a renegade against faith, now you might be a renegade against your whole identity, because that's all it was. Uh, But it also meant that non-Jews and whole non-Jewish groups could be absorbed by the Judean state and by so-called Judaism, and we focused on the the Idumeans and the Iturians in uh, past lectures. Today we're going to focus on individual people, not whole groups that are going to be swallowed by the Hasmonean conquests, but just individuals who, for whatever reason, have a relationship with Judaism uh, at some level. Now, uh, in the ancient world, to Hellenize meant many different things, but primarily to speak Greek. To Judaize never meant to speak Hebrew. That's an important point that language is a key component of most cultures and should be, arguably, a key component of Jewish culture, yet, in fact, was not. Nehemiah complains about the fact that the children of intermarriage are speaking Phoenician languages and don't know Yehudit. Doesn't notice it's not Ivrit, but Yehudit. Um, but he was uh, you know, the only voice complaining about that. For the most part, language was not the issue. It's going to be belief and ritual observance that are going to be the key components uh, to this new Jewish identity. Paul, in the first century of the Common Era, was ready to uh, shear Jewishness of its ethnic component entirely, but most of the Jews of antiquity were not ready to do that, which meant that although an outsider could join the group, were they really a full member of the group? No. In some way, there was, an, uh, there was an element of their, of, of their newfound identity that was lacking. And when we finally get to the issue of a convert, an outright proselyte, we will address, were they considered uh, 100% Jewish with full equality under the halakha, whatever law was normative at that time, or were they in some way different? And the answer to that question will evolve over time until today when it's at absolute equality. So that is a later idea that does away with an earlier concept of the Ger being somehow less Jewish, which we'll see in the sources. Okay. Uh, there are seven categories. We'll go through seven categories of non-Jews or people who are born as non-Jews who develop some kind of a relationship with Judaism. The first category are those people who admire some aspect of Judaism, but from afar. They admire something about Judaism. These are Gentile polytheists who see something virtuous in the Jewish faith. What? 
what might those things be? Give me an example. What 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 might uh, an avowed polytheist see in Judaism as being nice? Community. Community, correct. What else? So for a polytheist, that's not going to be all that impressive. For someone, for someone who is disgusted with the polytheism of the ancient world, belief in one God will be attractive. And that's where Christianity comes in in the first century. That people like the idea of moving away from the, the gods of Mount Olympus, which are abubamices, in favor of something which sounds real. But we're not talking about those people yet. We're talking about someone who might be a pagan believer, but notices something worthy in Judaism. So family values, yes. Shabbos, yes. The Sabbath will be one of the major uh, ingredients of uh, observance among the so-called God-fearers. What else? The subset of the community is caring of the poor. Correct. Charity. That's the major one. Charity is the absolute first thing. That uh, we, we can toot our own horn that our people, even in antiquity, were recognized for their philanthropic spirit much more so than the, uh, the misers of the pagan world. I think the early Christians also had... Taken that as an example. Yes, they were bordering a con communist to the point of disavowing private property, give it to the poor. So, charity um, is a key ingredient. Also, perseverance under persecution. People were impressed by the fact that despite our people being a beleaguered one and a people that lacked uh, uh, sovereignty and self-determination for a very long period of time were nonetheless able to preserve our identity and exist as a distinct people, which is no small feat. That's a tremendous accomplishment, and that impressed parts of the pagan world. Also, our humanity, our piety, and they appreciated Moses as a great legislator. So, not that this is a divine law that the Torah is coming from Messinai, Meharim, Meshamayim, but rather that Moses, as a human legislator, did a really good job of providing our people with a constitution. It was impressive. It is. Okay. So, those are people who admire aspects of Judaism. What do they do about it? Well, not much, other than maybe. Um, be less inclined to persecute our people if they were in positions of political authority. Uh, Just a healthy dose of respect. The second category of people are those who acknowledge the power of the God of the Jews. So whereas the first category was a very mundane and secular one, there are simply (coughs) things that I like about Judaism, uh, this category says a Gentile recognizes that the God of the Jews is a real God, and is a very impressive and powerful God. What does that not mean? That doesn't mean... Right, it doesn't mean monotheism. It doesn't mean subscribing to the religion of the God of the Jews. It simply means that I, as a polytheist, could say, hey, you know what? The the Jewish God is very impressive, very powerful. Look what he's accomplished over the years. So what, what biblical figures can we point to as antecedents of this classical era phenomenon? Paro. So, yes. Paro. Paro says, um, It's the finger of the Lord. So he, while not uh, uh, um, saying that the God of the Hebrews, the Elokei HaIvrim, is the one and only deity, I mean, he thought of himself as a God, he nonetheless recognized in the face of the Eser HaMakot that, yes, he's being bludgeoned by a very powerful deity. Who's next in the hit parade who recognizes the power of the Jewish God? Also in the book of Shmos? Moses. 
Yisro. Okay, we just read from his parsha a couple days ago. So what does he say? Ataya dati ki gadol Hashem mikol haElokim kiva davasha zadu alehem. I now know that you, that the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew God, uh, is great among all the gods. So actually, Elohim is 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 not is not holy in that context. It shouldn't be Elohim. It's Elohim uh, because of the matter that happened to you, meaning because of the Exodus. And depending upon where you want to put the, the story of Yitro, whether it's before or after Matan Torah, arguably the Theophany. So now I know that this God is a very impressive God uh, at the top of the food chain among the various, uh, in the pantheon of deities. Who else recognizes the importance of the power of the Hebrew God? So Bilam, let's leave Bilam out of this. Because he's a Jew. And I'm thinking, Levi, uh, who, hired, who hired Bill? Balak. That's the guy. Okay. So, uh, but actually, no, I'll, I'll disagree. Because if the, what is the first pasuk in Balak? And I, I, not that I'm proficient in the whole Torah, but this is my bar mitzvah parsha. Balak ben Sipor, So Yisrael did something to the Emori. Not that the God of Israel, acting on behalf of his people, did something to the Amorites, but rather that at the, at the secular level, just nation versus nation, the Israelites are, are, are on the march. Oh, all right. Let's let's leave Pashas Balak out of this. Achashverosh, yes, but not in the Jewish Bible. What, so, if not in the Jewish Bible, what am I referring to? I'm referring to the the Hosafot Megillat Esther, the additions to the Book of Esther, which are in the Apocrypha and the Christian Bible, but not in our Bible. It's in, ex, in the Greek Esther, chapter sixteen, verse sixteen. Which once I say it's in chapter sixteen, you know it's not in our Bible because how many how many prakim are there in Esther? Ten. Okay. So what does it say out of the mouth of Achashverosh? But we find that the Jews who were consigned to annihilation by this thrice accursed man are not evildoers, but are governed by the most righteous laws and are sons of the Most High, the most mighty living God, who has directed the kingdom both for us and our fathers in the most excellent order. So here you have, again, the idea that a pagan king is recognizing the greatness of the Hebrew God. In the Bible itself, you have a few other examples. Hiram Melech Tzor, Hiram of Tyre, who is the, collaborates with Shlomo HaMelech in the construction of the Beit HaMikdash, also uh, says something to this effect. It says, He was very happy. That, that he was rejoicing over the fact, Baruch Hashem, that, that God gave uh, David a son like Solomon who was so great and wise to rule over this people. Nebuchadnezzar, correct. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, verse 47, acknowledges the greatness of the Hebrew God. So there are many, many examples, both in the Bible and in the Apocrypha and later writings. So this is uh, an awareness of the koach, the strength of Hashem. Okay. Well, These things happen at times of our success, not times of our weakness. <laughs> All the examples that I've listed are where either something really good happened to us or something bad was averted. Not at the moment of <laughs> devastation. <laughs> but this is after the Churban already, when they're in Bavil, it's Okay. So, um, these, these people don't necessarily have a special relationship with uh, Judaism, 
they just might be adding our God to their list of uh, you know respected gods. It's in the it's in the, the the pantheon, but no no particular relationship to our people or to our, the nature of our faith. Well, what is the nature of correct, correct. Bring them on. Bring them on. <laughs> so, what's the next category? The next category, category three, are those who benefited the Jews or were conspicuously friendly to Jews. Who might be in that category? <coughs> so the answer is that there are many uh, world leaders who were uh, feared by our people and there was real concern that they might uh, destroy our people but in the end the encounter was much more benign than we had expected. Give me the classic example of that. Alexander, Alexander the Great, correct. So th- there, there are many stories of Jewish leaders meeting with world leaders. We've spoken about this in the past in some of the last year's lectures. Alexander and Shimon HaTzadik or Yaduah HaKohen, uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai and Vespasian, uh, and, uh, Rabbi Yoshua uh, ben Hanania and Trajan, uh, Trajan and or Hadrian, uh, Antoninus Pius and Rebbe, uh, all sorts of examples. Some of these were the kernel of historical truth, others totally made out of part of whole cloth. All uh, right, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's the same genre, same motif. So there is a an ending to some of these stories that is totally ahistorical, but is something of a humorous ending. And what is that? Huh? Not just that the Jews win. What happens to the world leader in question? Not just that. What else? They convert to Judaism, or their descendants are great rabbis who teach Torah and B'nai Brak. Okay, so the, so Alec, so in uh, among the legends about Alexander the Great, preserved in the, in the writings of the Church Fathers, although I don't believe it's preserved in anything in the, in the Midrashic literature, uh, there's a story of him converting to Judaism. Yeah, so so he converts to Judaism after having been convinced of the virtues of Judaism versus Christianity and Islam. That's another example of this of this type. So, why do some of our legends end with the king or the leader converting to Judaism? Because it makes us feel good. It makes us seem as though our religion is so worthy and obviously wonderful that uh, a powerful figure would want to embrace it. But are these figures who are remembered? Favorably, you know, Zahur Latov, because they were good to us, did they really have any kind of special relationship with Judaism? Probably not. For example, Cyrus. That's, the, that's the, the archetypical example in the Talmud of a world leader who does something good for our people and we blow it way out of proportion and think that he has some affinity for Judaism. What, how do you spell uh, Cyrus in Hebrew? Korish. What other word is with the same letters? Kasher. So the Talmud says that, that, that Koresh, Melech Kasher Hayah, Cyrus was kosher, uh, in that he was, you know, theologically on target. Of course, this, that same passage in the Gemara then says, yeah, but he did this, this, and that, and the other thing, which were bad, so he had his good days and his bad days. But he was Melech Kasher. Why? Because he, lo- he recognized the, the, the truths of, uh, of, uh, of faith, and he recognized the God of the Hebrews, and let us go back to the land of Israel. What really happened? Didn't he repeat, repatriate 
Correct, of course. So he repatriated many exiled peoples that the Chaldean Babylonian Empire had taken from their homelands. And the Persian policy was repatriate enough, enough of these people to let them rebuild their ancient homeland and their temples because it's good for business. It's politically expedient. So what was politically, politically expedient in the, the 6th century BCE was interpreted by the rabbis of the, of the Midrash of the 3rd century CE as that man having a special affinity for our people, even though it simply isn't the case. It's better, it's better than of course, all right. So, so w- w- when someone throws us a bone, we think it was a steak dinner. <laughs> you can but quote me on that one. That was a good one. For the, for the national self-image. Yeah, 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 you're right. Okay, so what's the next category? Uh, the next category are those... Well, actually, before we, we jump to the next category, um, there are those people who are moving in the direction of Judaism at the level of belief or the level of practice in a, to a significant enough extent that those around them, non-Jewish, let's assume, would confuse them for being a Jew. In other words, if you do enough Jewish things, someone who doesn't know any better will think that you're a Jew. Does, does our literature recognize that uh, popular mistake? And the answer is yes. So Gemara in the Megillah uh, 13a says like this, Kol Anyone who denies idolatry, Nikra Yehudi, is called a Jew. As it says in Daniel, Iti Gavin Yehudayin, referring to Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah were thrown into the fiery furnace, that they were Jewish men. Why were they Jewish? Because they denied idolatry. They refused to bow down to the graven image, and that almost cost them their lives, absent a miraculous intervention. So it's not so much that they were born Jews, it's that by rejecting idolatry, that makes you into a Jew. Now, does it really make you into a Jew? Are we, in the, in the community of, of, of observers of the mitzvot, going to give that person an aliyah in the synagogue? No. So why does the Talmud say it? Because in the real world, someone who's not of our group, who doesn't know much about our faith, would see someone rejecting idolatry, who this person has an affinity for the Jews, and think he's a Jew, and call him as such. Whether as uh, a, you know, a good faith error in, in, in identifying that person, or as a nasty comment about that person. Because... The, the, the general public doesn't like Jews. You're behaving like one of them. So not just a Jew lover, you're a Jew. Okay. Um, and the, the corollary to that was, Anyone who denies the idolatry, the efficacy of idolatry, it's like he was modeh, acknowledges the truth of Torah Kula, the entirety of Torah. But of course, realize that it's ke'ilu, it's as though. It's not really true, because you could deny uh, the efficacy of idolatry, like Avraham in, in the legend in his father's shop where he chops down the idols, but still not know much about Torah, or in fact find things in Torah abhorrent, like you know various controversial mitzvot that you think are wrong. That's step one, according to you. Huh? So you're right, it is step one, and it's, it's a step in the right direction, so what I'm saying is these Talmudic passages represent the kinds of popular conversations that might have happened on the street in the Gentile world about people who look like they're becoming Jewish. But if somebody's an atheist, according to that, 
they're considered Jewish. Atheist says, nobody. I don't, <coughs> I don't trust so, idols. I don't trust yes, Jews or anything like that. So atheism wasn't so common back then. <laughs> and and, and if, a, if a Gentile was an atheist, so there, there would never have been this relationship or even pseudo-relationship with Judaism for the comment to be made in relation to right. Judaism. Okay, let's go to category four. Those who practice some or many rituals of the Jews. Um, this is a, a, another step. Practical mitzvot, which is beyond just uh, being you know, favorably disposed towards Jews or thinking that the Jewish God is pretty powerful. Now you're ready to take upon the burden. Remember, it's the old mitzvot, the burden, the yoke of the commandments is what the Jewish people have. Okay, would you have two genres here? First of all, Right. Some sort of affinity for temple worship. Right. Which I think most probably would boggle our minds today. Yes. You saw an animal being slaughtered in front of you, I doubt it. You're going to be trembling unless you know you're next. Right. The other thing is the Shema Mitzvah's B'nai Noah. Okay. All right. Let's get to the Shema Mitzvah. Now we have a question. There is a category in the Torah of the Ger. And there is a category. Uh, in the Talmudic literature of the Ger Toshav. In the Torah, it's Ger Vitoshav, um, which seems to indicate two different categories. But uh, what is the Ger Toshav? And this Ger Toshav is someone who is entitled to live unmolested in Eretz Yisrael under the rule of the Jewish people under the laws of Torah. So in in a Jewish theocracy... Guided by the Torah, this Ger Toshav has a place in society. Who is that Ger Toshav? So, the, the Tanaitic rabbis dis- d- debate this point. Yeah? What about that? The people who, who want to come from the, the, the far corners of the earth and worship at the house of God are welcome. And, you know, there's a, there's a threshold beyond which they physically couldn't cross and which the, the Kohanim were very careful to, to, to enforce that. Uh, but they were welcome to bring their, their prayers and their sacrifices up to the threshold. Uh, they're not living in the, the land long term. They're simply arriving on the scene temporarily for a moment of religious worship. And that was welcomed. But the question now is, who's allowed to be here? Who gets a green card? That's the question. And the Tanaitic rabbis debate this point. But of course, when they debate it, it was not really a practical political issue because Jews no longer had sovereignty. Uh, they're under Roman rule, and there are, there are pagans everywhere. I mean, half the country was pagan at that point. Um, so, on what basis are they going to have their various opinions? You could claim that it is careful interpretation of the text of Torah. But I would, des- I would deny that. I would claim that they're looking at the real world, and what are the various types of pseudo-Jews out there, and which one do we think is sufficient to warrant uh, a, wel- a warm welcome by our people in our land? So let's look inside. The Gemara of Orozara. Ezehu Ger Toshav. What is the resident alien? 
First opinion. So Meir's opinion is, it's a non-Jew who accepted upon himself in the presence of three respectable Jews, Chaveirim, so you know, upper-level elite Jews, not to worship idols. Which would mean that a Ger Toshav is someone who venerates, might venerate the God of the Jews, but at the very minimum, doesn't venerate any other god. So he has forsaken idolatry. Not just that, he, that, that uh, uh, he recognizes some kind of importance to the god of the Jews, but no other gods. That's mayor. Okay. The sages say, Anyone who observes the seven Noahide laws, which would mean it's not just an issue of belief, it's an issue of behavior. You have to be willing to comply at the practical level with the demands we have for you. Now, those demands are not going to involve ritual religion, because is there any ritual religion in the Sheva Mitzvah Spenei Noach? No. It's essentially ethical and moral laws. It's not, uh, not religious laws. Um, but Acherim Omrim, others say, Elu lo ba'u l'klal ger toshav. These categories have not entered you into the level of ger toshav. That's not good enough. You've got to be even closer to Judaism to be a Ger Toshav. And what is that? Ela'ezu Ger Toshav, Zeger Ochel Nevelot, Shikibel Alav Lakayem Komitzvot Hamurot Batorah, Chutz Misun Nevelot. It's someone who accepted upon himself all the ritual commandments of Judaism, all the commandments of Judaism, except for Kashrus. Does that make any sense? So, Brismila? You have to do Brismila, but you can eat pork. That's what it sounds like. However, let's leave bris out of it for the moment because we're going to see that bris was the, uh, the key ingredient in making you actually Jewish. So put bris aside. But basically, all the mitzvot, other than nevelot, uh, eating carrion, let's assume it means all kashrus laws. The, well, Avim and is already a Noahide law, but, w- but now we're talking about nevela, trefa, chelev, uh, all the other things, kiranasha, uh, who knows what. This doesn't make much sense. If you were to try to parse the language of Torah and find a basis in the Bible for that opinion, you'd never find it. So why does this opinion exist in the name of the Acherim? The answer, because there were real people like this. There were various categories of pseudo-Jews. Some had denounced idolatry and maybe accepted only worshipping the Hebrew God, but without ritual commandments. Others were Noahides because that was incumbent upon them and, the, and the, their, their teachers within the Pharisaic rabbinic community told them this is what you should do, this is what obligatory for you. And the, the highest category is you do everything except eat treif. So this, these opinions represent actual people and then you have an opinion, what is a ger toshav? But as I said, none of this mattered because even the non-ger toshav was free to live in... in, in post-70 uh, CE Palestine, uh, or we'll, we'll call the, the heartland still, we'll call it Judea, um, because the Romans said and, and anyone can live wherever they want. And there, were, there were pagan polices. So uh, this is just a, like a, an abstract question of what is the, the Gertoshav of the Bible. But I bring it to show you there were real categories of people who did different things. Okay. Now, there is another category beyond practicing rituals. Category 5 are those who venerate the God of the Jews and deny or ignore all other gods. 
And this makes you not a Jew by halachic definition, or by the definitions of the, the inner Jewish community, but in the eyes of many, in the outside world, if you denied all gods except for the Hebrew one, you would be a Jew. So if we go to the literature, we see this. In Bell and the Dragon, which I quoted a couple of weeks ago, and none of you ever heard of it, Bell and the Dragon, it's the, it's the, uh, the extra chapters to Daniel. Um, you have the following line about uh, uh, the Babylonians. When the Babylonians heard this about a certain salvation that happened to the Jews, they were angry and turned against the king because the king had recognized the Hebrew god, Nebuchadnezzar, had recognized the Hebrew god and denied all other gods. So, the, quote unquote, the king has become a Jew, they said. He has destroyed Bel, killed the dragon, and put the priests to death. So by rejecting idolatry and accepting the Hebrew God, in the eyes of the pagans, such a person has become a Jew. In the eyes of the pagans. In the eyes of the pagans, yes. Okay. But you had levels beforehand where people had rejected of the Korkad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why should that be different from this? You had somebody who... Uh, in front of uh, three wise and three chaverim, yeah. uh, say, uh, I'm going to reject other gods. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, why is that different than this level? Okay, so, no, it's... it's, it's the, the, the Ger Toshav uh, category straddles two different uh, uh, groups within the, the, the presentation I'm making here. Category four was you, you do some Jewish practices. Category five is you deny all their gods except for the Hebrew God. Depending upon which version, the Tanaitic version of Ger Toshav you like, it's either category four or category five, like a hurricane. So uh, some people were doing mitzvot except they ate treif. That's, that's practical uh, orientation. Whereas others were denying idolatry and accepting the Hebrew God, which is in the abstract, not changing their behavior in the least. Okay, but that didn't really make you a Jew. Didn't really, yeah. What puzzled me was that the intent of the Ger Toshav to be thought of as a Jew? No, no. The intent of the Ger Toshav was to uh, secure a foothold in the Eretz Israel to live comfortably in a society that he liked. In other words, why do people ever immigrate from one country to another? Because they'd rather live in the new country than in the old country. And so the Ger Toshav. Like I want to live in Japan. Yeah. Correct. That's what it was. Now, there is another category. Category six are those who join the Jewish community but don't really become Jewish. What are the? Who are these people? Well, <laughs> so there, are, there, there are whole families when you have an entire family that joins uh, the Jewish people in classical antiquity where maybe one member of the family, possibly the patriarch of the family, has had a religious epiphany and goes through the full measure of proselytism, but the rest of the family might not. Might not be so uh, enamored with the mitzvot and want to live their lives you know, with the burdens of, 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 uh, of ritual observance, or might not have had uh, a change of heart theologically about what they think is you know, the truths upstairs. So, daddy's going along with the, with, with the Jews, I have to go along with him just because I'm part of the family, but, and I'm now a part of the community, but I'm not really much of a Jew. That's one possibility. You know, Rabbi, yeah. I mentioned Reformed Jews before, I was half in Czech, but I was half serious. Yeah. Important Reformed school for many yeah. years in Benzner. 
we have within our construct mm-hmm. a section of jury that falls into this. Category. I know what you mean. There, there, there are hundreds of thousands. There are hundreds of thousands of people. Actually, well. The sociologists will say it's that many, but it's probably a little less than that, who are involved in Jewish communal life, but are not halakhically, nor even by own, own self-identification, Jewish. Uh, and they go to shul, and maybe one member of the family is, uh, is a professing Jew and wants to be involved in some kind of uh, synagogue or worship community, and the other members of the family essentially are not coerced, but grudgingly, or not even not, not so grudgingly, participate as well. I know plenty of people like that. But they get married and they never convert, and yet they become the president of the system. Right. Correct. Yeah. That those things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now another, another category, which doesn't exist today because of the 13th Amendment, are slaves. Slaves... Uh, were ubiquitous in the ancient, ancient world. Everybody had slaves. Anybody who could afford it had slaves. And what happens if the master decides to become a Jew or move in the, the direction of Judaism, one of these categories, getting closer and closer to the Jewish community, and you are his slave of some other ethnic or racial group, and now you're living among Jews. You weren't interested in conversion. You weren't interested in anything, but here you are. And now what's your status going to be? You're going to be like an Evid Kanani, a Canaanite slave, just like the, 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 the real Jew down the road has his Canaanite slaves. You'll become one of those two. Huh? Right. So, uh, correct, correct. So it, do, it does exist not in slave form, but in, you know, in, you're, you're, you're on target. In the heart of our particular shul, there was a home care person who came to shul with this person. And we, that guy... So I know, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about because I do Shabbos services at in, at the United Hebrew of New Rochelle, three o'clock every Shabbos afternoon. Most of the, the residents in that service are Jewish, probably some of them aren't, but the uh, staff are of Southeast Asian uh, extraction, and they open up the, the the conservative prayer book that we use. Uh, why, which is, by the way, the worst sitter ever, the Sim Shalom. I can't stand it, but that's what they have on, on, uh, in the building there. And the, the ladies uh, on the staff, they know Elenu, Adon Olam, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, they know it all already. So these, these people do exist. Now, the third category is the wife for the sake of marriage. There was no conversion of the individual before the second century BCE. That we, we're pretty sure of, in the religious sense of the word. Afterward, there is conversion, although it's not until the second century CE when the rabbis really pin it down and tell you what are the exact parameters and the ceremonies, the essential components of that conversion ceremony. Yes. But one is going to be, yeah. Gerd Sedek. Gerd Sedek doesn't exist at the individual level before the Hashbanaim. We have no evidence of it existing. No. Torah never mentions a so called Gerd Sedek. Mentions Ger which we'll understand is a Ger Toshav. Now, not Ger Chassid. So, the Ger Tzedek, for a man, we're going to see involves bris milah. But for a woman, what does it involve? Immersion in the mikvah. Prior to the rabbinic period, immersion was never known as a component of, the, of a so-called conversion ceremony. Therefore, in the absence of circumcision, in the absence of, Brit, of mikvah, how does a woman convert to Judaism? She 
practices. She just does uh, without any fanfare. Uh, so if she married a Jewish man, simply by being married to him, she was now a Jew. But what about descent? Yeah, but matrilineal. Well, well, next next week was our, was our last session. Okay. We'll talk about matrilineal descent. So but we just had Ruth. We so had, so so. Married, they were married to Mark Monaghan. Yeah. But they were not Jewish until she told Naomi. So so the rabbinic literature yeah. will say that the words v'rachatz v'sach that you'll go wash yourself connotes immersion in the mikvah. But that's the rabbis a thousand years after the story of Ruth giving a halachic uh, uh, layer over, uh, spin over the plain reading of the text. Rachat's really meant take a bath so you'll be hygienically clean and Boaz will want you. I mean, but what you said was that if they marry, these two women yeah. marry Machlon and Kilion. So therefore yeah. they should have been considered Jewish. The answer is, they married Machlon and Kilion, Bisdei Moab, in the Moabite fields. Machlon and Kilion were traitors. So there's no Jewish here. There's just a, a there's there are Moabite women and renegade Jews who died. Now they come to Judea. What's their status? She's still Ruta Moaviyah. She's a Moaviyah until something happens and then she enters the fold. But my point here is this: that a woman who marries uh, will uh, take on the religious status of her husband. But what happens if that marriage comes and goes? Uh, it's a failed marriage which sometimes happened at the very elite levels. For example, we know one of the procurators married a Jewish woman, and, and sometimes uh, uh, pagan women of, 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 of noble ancestry married the later Hasmonians or the Herodians. These things happened, and sometimes men got killed or women got killed, and you have a, now a, a spouse without uh, um, their husband or wife, uh, so this person was a Gentile, was married to a Jew. The Jew is now dead. What do I do now? They go back to their uh, to, to their uh, ancient homeland and they forget about Judaism. Why? Because there wasn't the conversion of the heart. There was simply upon marriage, I do what my husband does. That's all it was. That, that's all it was. Okay. So this this is the the category six of those who joined the community without much of a, of a conversion. So so the the children of such a union, if they are raised in a, in, in a Judean environment, will be regarded as Judeans and therefore Jews uh, by religion, which is why Agrippa I is identified as a Jew. Now, he was a rare example of someone in, of that ilk who cared about the mitzvot and wanted to be a practicing Jew. But you could easily imagine how someone might have that identity, but not give a darn at all. And then what happens? They can gravitate back towards paganism and go to the coastal cities or go to the, the Transjordanian regions and be away from Judea, and they're not Jewish anymore. Okay. So, what do you need to be a real Jew? Category 7, the real proselyte. Tuition. Tuition for day school. You're right. No joke. The RCA manual, the GPS protocol since 2007, says you have to have K through 12 day school education. To, uh, uh, you have to promise that for your descendants if you want to become a Jew, which is a big obstacle in, in among the middle class and lower middle class areas. Uh, but that since 2007, the RCA and Beitin of America protocols require that the, the would-be convert uh, promise K through 12 day school education for their would-be for their soon-to-be children. 
which is very reasonable if you take away the factor of the tuition is, uh, is astronomical. I mean, just at the, at the level of, yes, Jew, Jew, Jewish education is important, I understand that, but it's not easy to pull off all the time. Okay, so what makes you a real Jew? Three things are needed. And we can actually see this in certain passages in the Apocrypha. So number one, you need mitzvah observance. You have to perform the, the rites and ceremonies of the Jews. Number two, you have to have a pristine belief in the one God, the God, the God of the Hebrews, and forsake any belief in uh, your, the gods of your youth. And the third thing is you need to join the Jewish community. You have to be in, 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 part of the Jewish community. You can't be on your own entirely. Uh, the Gemara talks about Megayar ben Olavein Atzmo, someone who converts on their own with, without the benefit of a, of a court of, uh, of three, of uh, Gimel Rabbanim or Gimel Hadyotot, even just three commoners. So is such a person really a convert? Arguably not, because you, they were not supervised. However, uh, even if you would say it's technically valid, they're not going to be treated as part of our world unless they're in our world. All right, that's the that's the important point. So, what era is that? So we're talking now in the last centuries of the of the pre, of the pre-common era. So let's say first century BCE in the book of Judith, we see the following: When Achior the Ammonite heard all that God of Israel had done, he became a firm believer. He was circumcised and made a member of the Israelite community, as his descendants are to the present day. So you needed belief circumcision, which is a euphemism for all the practical <coughs> mitzvot, and a member of the community. Three ingredients. The idea that circumcision plays a very, very important role in uh, the transition from Gentile to Jew is seen in a Mishnah in the Durham, of all places. Mishnah says like this, Konam she'eni if a person takes a solemn vow not to have any benefit from arelim, what is an arel? An uncircumcised person. So, mutar be'arele Yisrael ve'asur umot. That person is allowed to benefit from the uncircumcised Jews, but is forbidden from benefit even from circumcised heathens. Why? Because arel is not taken in the literal sense as meaning someone with a foreskin. It's taken to mean goyim. And Jews are not Arelim. Even if, in fact, this particular Jew is an Arel, well, we're not going to see it that way. The reason for that is because in Nidarim, in vows, the, the general rule is, Holchin achar lashon b'nei Adam. We follow colloquialisms. So, not uh, the minutiae and the technicalities, but what the people commonly say. So when you, when you call someone an Arel, you're calling him a Goy. Like in Eastern Europe, 100, 200 years ago, someone was an Arel, he was the Goy. He wasn't a, you know, a Jew who happened to have a foreskin. Okay. Um, now, what about those who would like to be Jewish but have a problem with the surgery? They're a little, they're afraid to go through with the surgery. Can they become Jewish? So a toughest dam works nowadays if a person was already circumcised. I, I have presided over two conversions where that was the case. Uh, and in fact, one of them, this is funny, normally the, a moel will do the hatafas dam. Even though it's a very minor matter, just a, a little pinprick. Yeah. So you could, you could say, well, you know, anybody could do that. You don't need a moel to do that. 
But still, you want a mole. You don't want to have some random chamyankel stabbing at someone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one time we were doing a, bris, uh, um, uh, a, a gear of a 12-year-old boy who was before Bar Mitzvah, who was, who was given a bris at, his, at eight days because his father was Jewish and it was a complicated story. And the mole was late. And Rabbi Ezrahi, and the chief rabbi of the Persian community, who was one of the three uh, fellows in the Beisdin, he said, well, I'm not waiting any longer. I have a train to catch. I'll do it myself. <laughs> but but the, the boy didn't go for that. We waited for the moil. Uh, Phil Sherman came five minutes later. Okay, so... Um, what happens if you can't do the surgery? So there's a, there's a passage in Josephus in Antiquities. Yeah. So the whole point was we wanted it to be a ger katan in order that he could have bar mitzvah bismano. And, and aside from, the, from that, uh, it's a lot easier at, uh, at the halachic level to allow a ger katan than a gadol if the kid isn't so from to begin with. Because if he's over 13, you have, requ- you have, you have, you have you know, technical mandates of ob- levels of observance that for a child we could ignore. Yeah, Especially if, uh, given in that case, the mother was, was the Colombian housekeeper. So it was, it was this is the whole story. Yeah? Off the record, I'll tell you the whole story. All right. So, At least uh, the house is clean. Jo- <laughs> just, so Josephus says the following about Izatis of Adiabni. So Queen Helena wanted to convert, and her son wanted to convert, but for a man it requires a circumcision. It says like this, and when he perceived that his mother was highly pleased with Jewish customs, he made haste to change and to embrace them entirely. So he was a good son, he listened to his mother. And he supposed that he could, do, he could not uh, thoroughly a Jew unless he were circumcised. So he assumed that a, a key essential component of the conversion is the bris. He was ready to have it done. But when his mother understood what he was about to do, she endeavored to hinder him from doing it, meaning she was the go-getter about Judaism. He was following her example. But when she found out that he wanted to do a bris, she said, hold on a second, sonny boy, and said to him that things would bring him to danger, as that he was a king, and he would thereby bring himself into great odium among his subjects, when they should understand that he was so fond of the rights that were strange and foreign to them. Basically, people don't like that which is different and strange to them. If it's not my practice, if it's somebody else's practice... They're wrong and I'm right. That's basic human nature. So if the king is going to take on the ways of a foreign group, his subjects will, you know, will think, this guy's not really a good king anymore. You know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a traitor, he doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have our interest at heart. So the mother told him, don't do the bris. Be, behave Jewishly, but don't do the bris. So which means he could never rise to the, the, the final level of full-fledged proselyte. He was simply a mitzvah observer and a God-fearer. Okay. Um, Sounds like Constantine. Vis-a-vis Christianity. He didn't convert until the end of his life. 23 years after the Battle of Milvian Bridge, when he had the supposed epiphany of, uh, in this sign you will will conquer. Okay. So, what does it mean to become part of the community? I said to be a real proselyte, you need the belief, you need the practices, you've got to be part of the community. Well, a few things. Number one, it has to be that you'll eat your sacred meals together with other Jews. If, if you won't do that, if you're holding back from participating in the sacred meals of the Jews, then you're not really Jewish yet, because, what does that remind you of? What, what, what part of Beratius? The Yosef stories in Mitzrayim, okay, where it was toeva, it was an abomination to eat with the Ivrim Lechot, Ivrim Lechem. 
that there's a kind of a racial bias here that we don't like you, you don't like us. So a person might like Judaism but dislike Jews. I know such people. All right? uh, and, they, and they might really like the substance of Judaism but find Jews uh, repugnant. Okay, so that's from the standpoint of the would-be gear. There's also from the standpoint of the community. If we don't let this person enter our uh, table fellowship, so we have made a conscious decision that this person is not really part of us. Even though they've gone through the technicalities of the giur and they might believe uh, properly and be quite uh, observant in the, in, the, in the mitzvot, there's something that we're doing to keep them out. So there's got to be table fellowship. Number two, you have to bring your legal cases to Jewish courts. That might sound like irrelevant, an irrelevant thing in our times, but back in the old days, the Arkaut Shal Akum, the, the heathen courts, were seen not as places of justice, but as places of corruption. And if you were a good Jew, you would never go to the Goyesha courts. You'd always go to the Beit Din Shal Rabbanim. Uh, and even to this day, in the modern period, um, in, the, in the Western states, uh, you know, there's this... Uh, preference for going to rabbinical courts for adjudication over you know, civil uh, litigation. I thought it's the opposite. Unless you're a rabbi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, well, it's true. So, the third thing is, and this is, this is a legal matter, you pay the temple tax, meaning you pay machasit shekel. If you do that, then you're a good Jew. You're part of the community because you're participating in the funding of our major institution. Of course, uh, aside from the temple tax, there were communal taxes in the diaspora communities uh, just to fund local institutions uh, uh, like, you know, the, the mikveh, the shul, the yeshiva. Okay? Uh, all those institutions have to be paid for. If you convert to Judaism as a private person, in, you know, 2,100 years ago, so no one needed to know that. But if you announce it, are you, still, are you yet a Jew? Well, not really unless you associate with the community and pay in, uh, for its upkeep. The last thing is, um, you're buried in a Jewish cemetery. You have to be, want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery uh, rather than with your uh, biological ancestors. You know, uh, the expression in the Bible, um, to rest uh, perpetually with your, with your, with your, with your forefathers, is a literal thing. You would go in the ground next to you know, dead grandpa. And dead grandpa was a pagan. So now the question is, are you going to be buried next to him or next to Chaim Yankel, the Jew? So if you're really a Jew, you're going to associate yourself even in death with your newfound community. Okay. Did they have separate cemeteries at those times? So cemeteries didn't really exist in the ancient world. You were buried... On uh, in your, in your, your wherever you died, basically, if if you were died on the street, the side of the road, you buried on the side of the road. There were ancestral plots, tombs, tombs you know, uh, hewn into the into the caves near where you lived, or you know, regional tombs, catacombs. But there weren't fields like we have today of like Beit Olam of a huge ten-acre cemetery that didn't exist. Okay, uh, what about? how the, the proselytes viewed themselves. So they regarded themselves as having been made into Jews. And these, there's a passage in Bereshit Rabbah where it says, Abba demin mitat it avid Yehudai, Father was made a Jew. Now the Shoresh, Ayin Bet Dalid, is to, to, to do, to, to work, to make, to be made into a Jew. Um, we have other examples of 
the, the same language, mitabed Yehudai. So that's how they identified their transition, their crossing of a boundary from pagan to, to, uh, to Israelite, having been made a Jew. But did the Jews see it that way? And so for the last few minutes we have tonight, what was the Jewish attitude towards full-fledged proselytes in the, early, the, the pre-rabbinic and early rabbinic period? So, there is a passage in um, in, the, in the Gemara in, well actually, let's, let's do the Mishnah and Kiddushin first. Mishnah and Kiddushin, chapter 4, Mishnah 1, which was Daf Yomi from a couple of weeks ago. So, Asawa Yuchasin Elumi Bavil. Ten categories of Jews ascended from Babylonia to Israel at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth. Kohanim, one is Kohanim, two Levim, three Israelim, four Chalalim, which are disqualified Kohanim, five are Gerim, converts, six are Harurim, emancipated slaves, which are the equivalent of converts, seven are Mamzerim, bastards, eight are Nasinim, Gibbonites, nine are Shtuki, uh, which is uh, you keep quiet because you don't know who the father was, and a ten is a Sufi because you don't, it's a foundling who's brought up from the street. You don't know who the mother or the father was. Okay. Who can marry whom? Kohanim Leviim Yisraelim Mutam Kohanim Leviim Yisraelim are all good Jews. We can marry each other. No problem. Leviim Yisraelim Chalalim Geri Harari Mutam Taking away the Kohanim, and now you have just Leviim, regular Yisraelim, Chalalim, meaning disqualified Kohanim, converts and emancipated slaves are all allowed to marry one another. Uh, then, Geri, Charim, Mamzeri, Nesini, Shtuki, Vasufi, Klam, Tan, converts, emancipated slaves, Mamzerim, and, uh, and foundlings can all marry each other. So, converts can't marry Kohanim. At least a female convert can't marry a male Kohen. But converts can marry regular Jews, good Jews. They can also, however, marry mamzerim, something a good Jew can't. So actually works out well for shiduchim purposes for the converts. They can marry almost anybody. Even, they have more options than a regular Jew, which is good because there's a bias against them, so they need as many options as they can get. But the fact that they can marry mamzerim says what about them? They're, they're somehow a little bit less, a little less than the regular Yisrael, because they can marry a mamzer, huh? Mamzerim, which is why there's a disincentive to marry them. You could do it, but why would you want to do it? Answer: If you're desperate, because you can't find the matrimonial partner among the upper classes, genealogical classes of Jews. Why you connect? Okay. So. Now, the, the, Torah, the Torah says the following. If you have a, a, a messed up uh, genitalia, you're not allowed to end, uh, marry into the congregation of God. Why not, by the way? Because if, if you were to do so, well, and, and then you had children, what would people think? Mamzer. Mamzer, there was, someone else was the father. So, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Arba Kilotein, there are four congregations of God that the, the Psuadaka, the one with the, with the severed organ, cannot marry into. And these four are Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim, and Gerim. So Rabbi Yehuda has the viewpoint that converts are actually on par with Kohanim, Levim, and Yisraelim. And thus the Psuadaka, the one with the messed up sexual organ, can't marry a Ger. That's pretty good for the Ger. I mean, he's up in among the, 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 the impressive categories of Jews. However, Chachamim Omrim Shalosh. 
The sages say, no, the Psuadaka is forbidden to marry three categories of Jews, Kohanim, Levim, Israelim, but the Ger can marry the Psuadaka. Why? Because the Ger is somehow a little less. They're not on par with everybody else. So Rabbi Yehuda is like in the pro-convert community. He says they're like all the rest of the Jews. And the Chachamim, no, 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 they're a little bit less. Okay, now we go to a Mishnah in Bikurim, which on Tikkun Lel Shavuot, in my shul we learned Bikurim uh, for a few hours, we did this Mishnah. Elu Mavin Velokorin. The following categories of people bring Bikurim in the temple, but they don't recite the scriptural passage of my father was a wandering Aramean, Arami Oved Avi. Okay, so. Hager Mevi Ve'eno Kore. The convert brings the first fruits, but does not recite the scriptural passage. Why not? Because they can't in good faith say that God gave my ancestors this land that we should inherit it. Okay? That's a very philosophical point. We're talking, you know, that's in Baal Tzalacha here. All right. We'll get, we'll, uh, so I'll address that in a second. Now, Vimhaisa Imo Yisrael, if the convert's mother was a Jew, may vivekore. If the convert's mother was a Jew, he can bring the first fruits and recite the passage of Aram Yoveravi. Now, that, stop for a second. If his mother was a Jew, he's a Jew. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a deceptive line. What it means is that if a person has some Jewish ancestry, then according to this Tanaitic opinion, they are like a real Jew who can recite the scriptural passage, and it doesn't matter with that, whether that parentage, whether that Jewish parentage is mother or father. So if it was mother, then by the matrilineal principle, this guy wouldn't even be a ger. But his father was a goy who converted, so he's like a half Jew, but the right half, as, we would, as my mother would call it. Uh, so... No, no, no. Early, much earlier than that. Much earlier than that. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that next week in great detail. But this guy was the right half Jewish, but his father wasn't. He was either a goy or a convert, so he's called a ben Gerim, the son of converts, but he's got some Jewish uh, ancestry, so he's in the clear. And all the more so if his father was a Jew and his mother was a convert, then he's a Jew for these purposes and can recite the passage. Okay. No, no, but the mother was a, was a Gioris, and the father was a native-born Jew. Yes, but if he was a Ben Gerim across the board, in this, in this, according to this viewpoint, he cannot recite the passage. Meaning, let's say he's a fifth generation, or seventh, or eighth, or ninth generation uh, descendant of converts, and they were all Gerim all the way through, he doesn't have a single Jewish ancestor, natively Jewish ancestor, then he cannot recite it. Because he's not a uh, he's not a Ben Yisrael going back to the days of Joshua, okay. So now Uchesheumit Palel when he davens, Beinol Veinatzmo. Listen to this because Bikum we don't bring anymore, but we we say Shmon Esrei every day. So when he davens to himself, Omer Elokei Avot Yisrael, not Elokei Nevelokei Avoseinu, but Elokei Avot Yisrael because they're not his fathers; they're the fathers of the regular Yisraelim. Uh, so we'll, we'll see that, yeah. Uchashub Vesak Nessus, when he's in the synagogue, Omer Lokea Votechem, 
the God of your fathers. So when he's at home, he davens without a minion at home, he says the fathers of Israel. When he's in the shul, surrounded by native Jews, he says your fathers. But if he had a mother or even a father who was Jewish, he says, because then he's part of the group. So this opinion says very clearly that a ger without Jewish uh, ancestry is not really part of the, 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 the community to the fullest extent. But we reject that. We have a mission. Uh, next mission in Bikurim says, Rabbi Lezben Yaakov Omer, Isha bas gerim kahuna. If a woman was descendant only of converts, she should not marry a Kohen. Until she has some kind of Jewish uh, ancestry. Uh, even up to ten generations and beyond. If you don't have any Jewish ancestors, you, the girl, should not marry a male Kohen. By the way, the halacha actually is that such a, a girl should not marry a Kohen, ideally, but if the marriage happens, we don't break them apart. We allow the marriage to continue. That's the, the halacha on the books to this day. Of course he's still a Kohen. No, not a halacha. No. no, they are. Yes. A Kohen can't marry a Gioris herself, but if she's a Bas Gerim, she's a regular Jew. Just in the ideal sense, this wouldn't happen. First generation, no. Okay, now... Yerushalmi. Here's where we get to, to the, your point, and, and with this we'll conclude. Tani b'shem Rabbi Yehuda. In the name of Rabbi Yehuda, remember Rabbi Yehuda is a friend of the Gerim. Alright? He says, Ger atzmo maybe v'kore, even uh, the, the convert himself, forget the descendants of one, the convert himself can recite the Bikurim paragraph, Matam, why? Ki av hamon goyim netaticha. Who is that? Avraham. First he was Avram, and now he's Avraham, Av Hamon Goim Netaticha, the father of many nations. So many nations means that he's everybody's daddy, especially the Gerim from a, uh, of a later time. They can point to Avraham. Avraham was my ancestor, uh, and I'm part of your group. Okay, and the halacha it follows Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shubin Levi Amar Halacha Karabbi Yehuda. So we paskin that the Ger davens like everybody else. And the Ger does Bikurim like everybody else. And these older opinions about how the Ger was some kind of second-class second person have been discarded. Okay. The Gemara Yavamo says, Taval ve'Allah, he goes into the mikveh and comes out of the mikveh, Harehu ki Yisrael lechol devarav, he is a Jew for all purposes. And that's basically the guiding principle that we have nowadays, that the person who enters as a full-fledged proselyte and has gone past the stage of being a god or a friend of the Jews, or a Philo-Semite. He's, he's gone all the way. They've gone the distance. He's like a Yisrael Lechol Dvarav, for all purposes. Fifth century CE. That's fourth century CE, yeah. Okay, so, when they're called Ben Avraham, when they get an aliyah to the Torah, the question is, do you say Ben Avraham Avinu, or Ben Avraham? So, for aliyahs in Shul, I have almost never seen Avraham Avinu. It's almost always Avraham. My shul happens to have a lot of Gerim. A, lo- a lot of Gerim. Half the, the, the Shomer Shabbos population of my shul are either Gerim or children of Gerim. Yes. And, uh, Nobody gets in the so, so all Ben Avraham. Ben Avraham. Not Avraham Avinu. Where this comes up is an Aksuba aksu, an, an at a wedding. Do you put down Avraham Avinu or not? Also, for a girl, is it Giorta? 
uh, instead of itisa or betulta, you, know, you identify the girl by her, by, this, by her virginity status usually, or by her marital former marital status. But for a gioris, it's giorta. So some people don't like that. It's identifying someone as a convert. So they 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 play around with it and they just put down woman itita. Uh, instead of Giorit. And I was at a wedding not that long ago of a girl who I was involved in the conversion and a very prominent Rosh Yeshiva from YU did not put in Giorta so as to not identify uh, her status. So uh, these things are done. Another thing the Gemara says, actually the Tosefta in Gittin says, Ger Shishina Shmo B'Keshem Goim Kasher. The converts had a tendency to change their names to get rid of their heathen-sounding name and adopt a Jewish-sounding name so as to blend in. Now, bear in mind, this was done at a time when there was a, 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 the predominant rabbinic opinion was that the Ger should say Elokeinu, uh, Elokei Avotam, their, their God, because the Ger was still a second-class citizen. So he doesn't want to be known as such. He wants to blend in completely. So what do you do? You, you change your name, you change your clothing, you change everything. You, you, know, you, you change your library card. Everything goes, something new, that nobody should know the difference. Brittany. Yeah, well, so... <laughs> All right, well, this will stop. Next week will be our last session for the year. Last session for the year, and we'll start at 8.30. We'll do matrilineal descent.